Welcome to Dialogues. Today we are talking to Bob Hennessy, based out of Sydney, Australia. He's been associated with technology-enabled business change for over 40 years and worked in executive management roles over the last 23 years as CIO, COO and CEO across six industries. Most recently, he had five years with Lees as a group CIO and is now a director at BeFound Group. This episode was recorded in July 2020 and our main topic for today, design for manufacturing in the construction industry. Let's go chat with him. Hi, Bob. Thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. So good to be um, here. Yeah. Well, thank you. I know it's uh, you know late your day, early mine. So yeah, across the time zones. Um, so before we get into your story, which we're we're looking forward to hearing about, maybe just. Uh, very quickly, the elevator pitch for, for DFM. What, what is that so people can understand what it is? You know, I was with a, uh, an owner of a, a home building business here in um, Australia. They do about 30,000 homes a year, a private company. And he, and he said to me the other day, he said, I've got a, got a friend who's a manufacturer and he was explaining to me how even though they bring in parts for their product from all over the world, when they come together, they simply clip them together and they fit perfectly first time. So why can't we do that in construction? And does manufacturing have been evolving design for manufacturers as a, as a, a discipline for many years, and it is purely about a perfect design that is then used to orchestrate the manufacturing of the components that you then assemble into a finished product. That's designed for manufacture. And construction today, broadly as an industry, still rejects the idea that this is something that fits in this industry. But there are many green shoots, and in my view, an inevitability that this is where the industry will go. Brilliant. Well, that's what today I'm hoping to get into, which which we're looking forward to. Um, so your story, Bob. So where in the world do we find you? And uh, maybe just a little bit about how you started, where you grew up, and, and how you got to where you are today. How long have you got? Um, yeah, all day. So, look, you know, I, 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 came in, I came into the, uh, into the cons- property and construction industry only in 2015. But uh, my career goes back to 1977 when I started in the steel industry in a, in a uh, um, heavy steel manufacturer of the type, the Bethlehem steel, Sheffield steel that many people would be aware of, uh, but uh, it still works in Port Kembla of, of similar size complexity, um, about 23,000 people on the steel plant. And uh, I, I was born and bred in that town and that was a place where many people you know, started their careers, but uh, my career was in started in software. So I started writing software in 1977, the start of 1977. So that's... Uh, over 43 years now that I've been in this in this trade, um, and I came through, did 11 years in in uh, that industry, learned a lot about steel and the steelworks, and learned how to write software. Probably wrote in eight or nine different software languages over that time. And um, but importantly, though, I was involved in big transformational um, activities through the 1980s in that steelworks, which largely a why, despite the loss of Bethlehem Steel, Sheffield Steel comparably complex large steelworks, uh, the Wollongong 
still still exists today as a manufacturer of you know primary manufacturer of steel and then secondary products in slab and plate and, and strip steel mm. and it was it was that that coming together of technology and the transformation of a business i guess laid foundations right. at the time i didn't fully understand the significance of for me but it probably ended up defining somewhat where i kept going to in my career so i then landed in transport for about 11 years transport and distribution uh then fell into banking for about five years banking and financial services one of the major banks here in Australia, then into telecommunications. I was a COO and a CIO in, 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 in Telco here, owned by Telecom New Zealand. Uh, then through a management buyout, ended up uh, becoming what I call an accidental entrepreneur, accidental entrepreneur <laughs> and had a business for about three years. Uh, we then sold off to a Chinese group, uh, got lucky, did, did reasonably well out of that, and then found my way into property and construction. And I think it's because of the diverse industry experiences pre coming to this sector that are not common probably five years ago even of people who were coming into this sector that i immediately saw things that perhaps many who'd lived in the industry for many years um did not outside of my professional right. world i've you know got lots of kids uh, had a divorce uh, pretty early i had three kids we came together with three each so that was interesting at 30 and uh Six. Uh, we've had one together, and uh, actually on Saturday last weekend, uh, my eleventh grandchild was born. So, oh, congratulations! Um, wow, made made quite a mess, and uh, <laughs> and also lots of passions too. I guess I, I spent my youth uh, kicking soccer balls and hitting tennis balls and cricket balls and golf balls, and but played a lot of sport and uh, underachieved in all those sports against my ability. I learned a lot about. Uh, the difference between talent and achievement and outcomes. Right, no. And uh, was, yep. was lucky to grow up with a brother who became a world-class uh, violinist, uh, the only Australian to be even invited to trial as concertmaster of the Berlin Philharmonic, for example, oh, at wow. nine years old. He, you know, he knew his destiny. And so right. I should have learnt more about what excellence really takes just by living against him. Unfortunately, it took me a little longer in my life to sort of really reflect on that and start to understand um, yeah, he's your brother. The price and, Come on. And, and, and rewards. <laughs> uh, young, younger no, brother or older brother? Younger brother or older brother? Older brother is. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you're old, not going to follow. <laughs> and and you know, quite quite uh, is is quite an icon in the in the classical music industry here in this country, and uh, done very well. Yeah, brilliant. Well, yeah. So with that, you know, history of coming from the the manufacturing and the technology and building these, it makes no wonder that you're. You know your opinions on this and and where you've and how you've got to you know coming up with the ideas that you've got so if we go a little bit we talked a little bit about the elevator pitch if we go a little bit more deeper into um you know dfm and i was uh, we said we talked a little bit earlier that when i was doing my research for this call you know i kept on coming up with dfma and dfm and there's and the you know these terms were banded about but there's differences between them um so maybe you can go into a little bit there about that yeah, look, I, I think the A is really important. It's almost where the reward for the effort <laughs> is realised, right? The, the fact you can design perfect componentry um, means that rather than the classic mode of construction, which is done with transformative processes, you know, shave a bit off here, add a bit there, using tools that, that continue to do transformative activity on componentry until final assembly is complete and even beyond into into the redemptive work that gets done as you as you fix the problems in a construction site, which is a normal part of the process, right? Punch lists, as they call them in the US. Right, yeah. 
um, assembly happens when you don't have to do any more transformative activity. You're simply putting together the componentry. So DFM without the AFME misses the reward, right? The reward is this lower cost, lower skill set requirement to enable um, an activity that is now putting the Lego together. And and um, so that, that that would be the distinction I'd draw between DFM, DFM-A, which is simply that, you know, if you, if you get the DFM right and the componentry is all perfectly created, then you can simply assemble, right. not transform. And um, so it just seems like it's all upside. So wh why? So what's what? What? What are the challenges? Do you think then? Why? Why? Why is this something that is just no, so, not so obvious? And why is it? Why wasn't it done thirty, forty years ago? It's fascinating, you know. And and, and again, I, I should say, right? It, it in a journey like this, of course, there've been others who've influenced my thinking, right? So you get to a point and you own your own thinking. But I, you know, I do reflect on. Uh, particularly uh, one guy in the least called Daryl Patterson, who without whom my my thinking would not have probably refined to the point it has. And I needed someone who really understood the industry, and probably also uh, a guy who was my chief architect at, at Lendlease called Richard Ferris. Between the three of us, we spent many hours working our way through these things over the last four or five years. So the thinking's been influenced. But I think right. um, it's it's like it's like many of the stories we all know right we all know that the swiss invented the digital watch and yet their watch industry was destroyed by the digital watch which they did not go on to perfect as their own, as a discipline of their own ha having envisaged and invented the idea from within their own industry we all know you know blockbuster said no to netflix we all know the kodak story so all these things look so obvious in hindsight, right? But in the moment, there are reasons why companies, industries don't see the future. And, and it's just about the, 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 you know, that paradigm of being locked into the way things are and not being able to kind of step, step outside of that and, and see past the current structures in the industry, systems of work in the industry, the belief systems that evolve around the industry. And so in this industry, there's really, really, you know, deeply skilled people in, in, in each key discipline area that, that remain quite fragmented from each other. So the architecture disciplines, many brilliant people, the design discipline, similarly, people who manage construction work, you know, deeply expert people, people who are the subcontractors that do the work to design and implement the plumbing solutions and the HVAC solutions and the, and the electrical solutions. And they work in a system of work where every day they get up and the, it is the way it is. And so you have to you have to think outside of the way that operates and look at the industry from end to end to even challenge the idea of how things operate today. But the fact that I design a building now and then I hand that design to a, a general contractor who then takes that design and often I'll have given him a three-dimensional model of the building, but he'll reproduce down into paper two-dimensional planning sheets, send them to a plumbing subcontractor who will take maybe six months to design a plumbing solution for a 40, 50-story high-rise building. But he's done that, and the electrical subcontractor's done the same thing, and the, and, the, and the HVAC guys have done the same thing. And, of course, what they all do is design solutions that actually don't, come together beautifully because they've been designed in splendid isolation. So the industry has a, a process that 
it calls clash detection. It goes, where's where's the plumber put a pipe where the HVAC guy wants to put a duct? Right. And they resolve those conflicts. And it, the, 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 and you can't change that unless you're prepared to take that design process of the plumber and bring it back into the original design process that the, the design firm are doing. Right. But the belief systems in the industry, are you you don't do that because if I do that and I tell the plumber what that design is, I can no longer hold him wholly accountable for his work product and I can't transfer the risk to him that I want to transfer to him because I, the general contractor, don't want to have that risk on me. I want him to be suable if he gets it wrong. And so to start anywhere in that process chain to try and make this change, and other than at the front, it means right. you, you, it's almost impossible to make the change happen. But it's been the enemy, therefore, though, of innovation. Because innovation in industries where you've seen transformation, um, you know, what happens is industries verticalize, right? So they, they, they interconnect all the activity from front to back. And you saw this happen, I think, uh, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite stories, I think, in terms of this, that, that helps see the, 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 the change here is the, the story of the Boeing 777. It was designed in 1988, I think the program started. It turned into the best ever first, you know, maiden flight of a new commercial aircraft. And that aircraft, and what's often reported is that aircraft was fully digitally designed, full comprehensive uh, design of the aircraft in every facet. The story that's not so often told, but I think is at least as critical to, to the success of that project as the digital design was the fact that the supply chain partners were brought into that design process. And so they owned their component of that design. Right. So collectively, they signed off a design saying, that is what we will do. We will own that. And so then the materials manufactured off the back of that design were manufactured through that coordination across all of those supply chain players to be perfectly matched into a, a whole design. And therefore, when the pieces were manufactured, they fit. And you, you have no clash detection in that model because the design is agreed up front. Comprehensive, 100% resolved design is agreed up front. Everybody manufactures off that. And of course, you get those, those, those arguments to say, yeah, but you know they make lots of 777s and we only ever do a building once, so you can't afford the price of that kind of... Right investment you know in, in a comprehensive design and and i just i think that that misses um it misses the point because what it doesn't count is the the cost of the rework and redesign and all that other activity that happens off the back of never having invested in getting that one design done right up front right so the architect produces a model the design firm produces a model the gen, general contractor often produces a model and each of the subcontractors produce a model and then the owner says i want a model and so yeah. they redo a model and if you look at that, if you look at if you look at the, the the life of data in that value chain, it's it's, it's ridiculous. You know, in advanced industries, data is created at the front of the process and it gets enriched throughout the process to the end That's point. Right. In this industry, data is like a sawtooth; it gets created and thrown away, created again and thrown away in each step in the value chain. And so, the inefficiencies right. in that are, are proven in many industries to to be enormous. And and it's it's uh, you know, my thesis is that the the first buildings we start to build in this way will actually not have an R&D premium to them, though you will get productivity gains from day one. And I saw similar things happen in other industries, particularly 
you know, the transport industry as we introduced technology into depots and so on, people were very worried about the data management load on people. But what right. we found was very significant productivity gains through the systematization of the work in a, in a, in a, in a designed way. And that's what's being missed here. All, all of that mess of rework and inefficiency gets lost in a complex ecosystem. And it's hard for people to see unless you get back to 30,000 feet and look, look down on that end-to-end value chain of work. That's right. And you touched on it slightly there. Well, you talked about the system of work and the belief structure. Obviously, they're very much intertwined. They they drive each other. Um, We talked about uh, the inefficiencies there, um, management of risk and pushing it down. What other uh, reasons would the industry be giving um, for not doing it? And the the analogy there of the data is, is something that we've, you know, we, we thought about in store, you know, for forever because we're a data-driven company and the ability, the, the value of that data and not having it siloed, uh, even within an organization and its own projects, let alone across the supply chain or across the the teams, everybody, it, it, all the teams uh, within within you know, projects, big or small. What what are those other reasons that these uh, the players in the game in the model could give for well this is just a fad and we've tried it it doesn't work and it, you know we're just going to continue to do what we're doing there's a there's a lot of ways to come at that question i i'm always really wary of of attributing motivation to people for why they do things right because you it's you never really know right unless you're them and even often if you're them you don't know because right. it could be subliminal but i you know That's if you right. think about the value proposition of a construction worker you know, one of the things that gets them out of bed every day and you, you, you get them talking is the problem solving nature of their job. They come to work every day and they crack problems all day. And that's that's what makes them expert. And and so the idea that that's a potentially obsolete skill set because we don't create those problems in the first place is, is, is actually offensive. I've, I've been <laughs> I've had a few conversations that you know go down in my change management 101 book right from people who do not appreciate me suggesting that there's massive productivity opportunity in this industry they kind of think well who are you come in here five minutes and i'll leave the expletives out um and think that there might be 20 or 30 percent productivity gains to be made in this industry when we've been at this all our lives do you think we're stupid Right. And so they, they hold on to, to what they know and to what their value proposition is. And, and, yeah, it's our identity. And, and and I, I, it, it is. And I don't say it's for some kind of um, bad reason. You know, I, I just think mm. it's that conviction that I'm an expert. And so how dare someone suggest that what I know how to do is not value or not the best way. Right. And and I think we all get out of bed every morning to, to come and do a good job, right? So so I think that, yeah. but that's a very powerful force because if, if if people aren't ready to hear an option, you know, it, it is blinding. And that whole you know the whole idea of I hadn't heard of the word paradigm until the Swiss watch industry stories used to get told. But that whole yeah. idea of being in locked in a paradigm, I think, is that's incredibly right. powerful and has been proven to be so. And so you know, it, it is certainly. One of the big reasons why this this sort of shift hasn't occurred. Um, you then also go, it's it's hard to do as well, and yeah. and you need you need belief based decision making, not fact based decision making, for people to step forward and start 
this journey. The belief, in my view, can be well founded on looking at analogous examples from other industries, but you've got to believe they hold true. And you get some very, very sophisticated arguments against the idea. I love the one that says, you know, the, you cannot amortize the cost of a perfect design across one project. You need to be, a, you know, manufacturing millions of things to amortize the cost of, right. you know, design across um, a large volume. And, and it sounds really, it sounds quite compelling as an argument, right? I mean, it's well stated. It's stated by intelligent people. But actually, you know, as I said earlier, you look at the design and redesign and rework activity that happens for not doing that. And actually, the, the, you know, the cost of those things are far more than offset by, the, by perfect design. Of course, right. one of the, one of the uh, um, things we, we've, we've come to believe too, though, is if you want to design a 50-story building down to the thread on a screw, you probably need to get into automation of design to make some of that happen. But as soon as people hear automated design, they, they think patterns, they think very common same buildings that, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a sense where we don't want our cities to look like Leningrad. We want them to look beautiful. So we reject this premise that we can just make this like manufacturing because we want everything to look different. But I say, well, look at cars, you know, they don't all look the same. <laughs> Um, you know, and and we're deeply convinced that you know you, you can you can have beautiful, bespoke designed things applying the principles of manufacturing in key ways to drive massive efficiency. So you know, so productivity premium, a safety premium. When when I started in the steelworks in 1977, we killed a person a week. The last death on that steel plant was in 2008. Industrialization, you know, has many benefits. And so you see productivity, you see safety, you see sustainability as well. So what you right. will see is, is, as manufacturing is done, I mean, look at the price of a car. Many studies done on how little the real price of a car has lifted, despite the improvement in quality and featuring and everything else. Right. right. So you get you get that that premium in sustainability with material science evolving and so on. Safety, sustainability, productivity, quality of the product. Um, automotive manufacturing in the UK went a thousand percent quality improvement in the 90s through the application of the total quality management principle. Right. Um, Japanese auto went 400 percent productivity over 13 years from 1960 through total quality management principles. Lay down a systemic, repeatable way of working, then start improving. Right. And I think often because people can't conceive of the end game and think it's we're here now, we have to flip to this. It also rejects some of this premise because that change just looks too extraordinary but the reality is other industries have taken 40 years to make the same sort of shift so it's very hard right. for anyone to simply conceive of of this yeah. i guess it takes people as old as me to believe that 40 years might actually happen and and <laughs> you'll be here to see the end of something that started in, in you know in this in this era but i've yeah. now you know been around industry in the world and been observing these things long enough to have seen some of those shifts occur and I've seen many companies pay the consequences of not seeing these shifts occur. So, yeah. And, and, you know, when you talk about those shifts, well, no, so, I mean, there's so many uh, similarities with what we're seeing at the moment, just as a result of what's happened over the past four or five months, you know, I think about education and that hasn't changed in two, you know, 2000 years and the industrialization of that and the reasons for it. And then how that has just been flipped on its head because 
literally now you can't have those students in the same classroom as your teacher and then you look at the these these you know the other constructs we're, we're stuck in about companies um you know not trusting a workforce to be remote you know and so it's taken something obviously hopefully it's not like what, for what we're going through now to, to create that shift but there has to be something that is gonna that's gonna ignite that and and to push it so and so if if uh, let's just say something does happen there's a shift in some kind of geopolitical environment some something causes it to happen um who will it sounds like everybody will benefit from the solution but you know who might drive it and who might benefit most from it maybe that's an obvious question as after we've gone through no well it's, look it's 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 uh it's Again, you know, the numbers of dimensions in this, and I just want to pick up on what you said about, you know, what it took for perhaps people to challenge the thoughts around remote working or the nature of schooling. You know, I've, I've long held a thesis that it's only for companies, it's fear of death that will be what it takes to drive change. Yeah. And so unless that's there, it's very hard for companies who otherwise think they're being successful to, to, to go through the pain right. that it takes to change. Um, and there are companies inside the industry today who are brilliantly positioned with positional assets who do investment in property development construction. Not many. Lend Lease is an example of one of those yeah. who have all the ingredients and all the reasons to drive and accelerate the change. But so often industrial companies, the forces in the industry do live inside the company as well. And so, you, you know, you see those challenges to change. So, you know, it would not be unreasonable to suggest that the, that the challenge will come from a couple of potential areas. One, just outside. Kateria started their company, Mark started the company on the basis that, you know, the industry's a mess and we're going we're gonna to blow it up. Right. Now, they haven't cracked it, all right? And, and the, there'll, be, I think, be many theses written on the Kateria story in the years to come. And I'm not saying they failed yet. But they've certainly got a long way to go. No, it hasn't hasn't been the overnight success that I'm sure many hoped it would be. There's a lot of money being thrown into that company, um, and you know we'll all have our, our thoughts about why that's been a challenge. So it'll either come through a, a disruptor like that, who just jumps in and says, "I'm going to do this different, Uberize the industry in the way Uber did for the taxi industry," yep. or it'll come from companies who perhaps start at the simple end of the product set and, and prove the discipline and the theory and then bring it forward. And there's a, you know, one, one company that uh, we got to know through a lot of the work we did over the early years based out of the, the north of uh, New Zealand who, who transformed shed building, big industrial sheds, and taken a, 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 a you know, taking their 40 year old company of uh, you know sub 10 million dollar turnover to one of four or five times the size over the last few years right. um, and, and and in an industry that makes three to five percent margins and turn it into a 50 percent margin play in the lowest cost highest quality faster delivered sheds it's a very simple product design your shed in 15 minutes online get a fixed price quote get it all the parts delivered in 30 days you're done Get it assembled by a franchise partner to that to that model, but it proves it's it, it's a beautiful demonstration of the principles that will eventually be what happens to building fifty-story high-rise buildings, right. and 
So it could come in the same way as gaming invented a lot of technology for you know transformation in industries or aerospace previously perhaps was where a lot of that innovation came from yeah. people coming in from from a, um, a tangential place in the industry or from a simple product set that they then take the scale at the big end or from a consumer product that becomes you know um, a, 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 an enterprise product or an enterprise product that can be scaled down to become a consumer volume product those sorts of shifts are where you see change come from as well so i think an industry player at the simple product end or a transformer, they're the two ways it could happen other than right. one of the big players in the industry really switching this on and getting it right. And uh, as I stand here today, I wouldn't predict which one of those it will be. And uh, it's a good good debate for the pub. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. And so, and the benefits, when once that happens, what what are they going to... What are they going to experience you know, we, and financial financial we, benefits? You know, if a CFO, what, what, what's you know, what are they going to see? So the, there are the, they're the obvious ones, and I touched on productivity, quality, safety, sustainability. Um, yeah, obviously, the customer benefits. The world, ben uh, you know, it's not overstating it to say that the world benefits, right? That the, I mean, concrete is the second most consumed product on the planet and is 8% of the world's carbon emissions. Right. If you come to fabricatable concrete substitute style materials into this industry, um, you know, and we're, we're, those sorts of things, polymer type products and so on are being, being um, you know, worked on today that, that see 75, 80% of the carbon emission in that, in that product disappear. You're talking about 6% of the world's carbon emissions right there in one, in one thing. So, yeah. Customer will get his home more predictably, at a more predictable cost, um, at higher quality finish. This has all happened with cars. Right? Right. Um, uh, the world will see a more sustainable industry. We'll be able to build cheaper homes. So the whole affordability issue starts to shift. Uh, we'll apply principles of modularity and other things to lower cost into a, into a system of work that can cope with those sorts of innovations progressively. So the, there's a broad range of beneficiaries to this. In, you know, this is the $13 trillion industry on the planet. It's arguably the largest industry on the planet. So a little wonder that if we, if we find a 1,000% productivity and quality improvement in the next 20 years, there'll be a lot of people who benefit. And um, so, you know, it, 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 I think the, the, the returns on this are, are enormous over time as this industry shifts into this mode. Right. And for the project manager watching this listening to it head of project controls director what what kind of things it seems such a big elephant to take a bite out of but what what are the things that they can be is it education is it come up to speed with it is it just seeing how you can apply the challenges that they've got today to get those wins which see immediate benefits you know low-hanging fruit you know, what what is it uh, what was it what is it so it's done? interesting you know because th there's there's two ways this change is going to happen i think there are those leaps those transformative leaps and certainly if an outside industry player comes in or a company turns on a, a product type where they're just going to go we're going to change the way we do business there fundamentally overnight on this project you'll see um, you know, people will have to be inducted into that mode of working. But for the, for the evolutionary change that's occurring, mm. 
you know, a project director that says, I have a project plan that has all of our work activities for tomorrow for ourselves and all of our supply chain partners, and we work together to collaborate around ensuring we all collectively get our jobs done, is transforming many belief systems. So, you know, you, you talk to many construction executives, and so no way my project plan should have my subcontractor's work activities in it, because otherwise he's going to blame me for getting it wrong, you know. And, and so yeah. even those kinds of steps... Um, are pushing the envelope forward around this idea that if you bring more collaboration into this industry, if you take away combative supply chain management, and we're the last industry on the planet that still believes in that, right? Strategic supply chain partnering has been a, a, a factor in most other industries for a long time now, although, you know, right. supply partners to retailers might not really call it partnering, they might call it something else, but it's an orchestrated process in collaboration, right, by agreement. And, and this industry doesn't do it. So for the project manager, I think, yes, turning their head to these things. And, and most project managers have relatively high degrees of autonomy on their project. It's a very project-based yes. industry. So they can try things and have them done differently. It's, been, it's true and is part of why the industry has found it very difficult to change systemically because projects are quite independent. And just because I did it on this project doesn't mean it automatically will get done on the next one because there's no right. system of learning in the industry and in the way that manufacturers have done and so on for, for many years using the principles of, fundamentally the principles of TQM. And so, you know, whether that's design thinking or theory of constraints or zero defects by Crosby, I mean, there's there are 10 or 12, you know, yeah. uh, methodologies around effectively the same thing that are where you get systematic, systemic, the repeatable ways of working as a foundation for then improving systemically. Right. And any project manager that can, lay down you know collaborations through supply chain that can, can move to a more trusted collaborator and agreed upon design that's used as an authority to document throughout the chain of work i think is making really important headway down this path but they will often be fighting against elements in their own organizations who would, would discourage them from doing some of those things so they need to probably find pockets where they can do it quietly to build their own confidence and belief in the power and the value of these things but they will be ready then with their own stories to adopt these changes over the next 20 years, as they inevitably, in my opinion, uh, do happen. There are too many green shoots now, uh, I think, to, to think that this will go away now. I think we are finally right. seeing something that's been predicted in my papers back as far as the 80s. But, um, um, yes, it's still not a painless journey. And and you mentioned the methodologies there. We talked previously about that maybe the perfect example of 777 we've spoken about the you know examples in the car industry where they're taking these engine blocks and putting them into these different chassis to make a completely different you know product really for the market if if people were looking at any resources where would they be going to immediately you know apart from those obvious things where else could they be going to actually make that change on their project when they come when they were during the contracting strategy the development phase during you know the planning design phase what are the resources do you think well there's some there's some um uh academic and other industry bodies who are who are starting to switch on to these principles so for example in australia uh there's the the building 4.0 um research program now that we we uh in uh, instigated with uh, support of government, some industry partners, okay. only only late last year, right? That we were awarded uh, that that work. It's a 
about $100 million worth of investment in these ideas over the next seven years. Um, and that's, you know, public domain, government money, publicly accountable. That'd be a great place to go and, and, and sort of understand what people in there are doing and connect with people and people who are connected to that to, right. um, uh, to, to, to see a way potentially through some of this, right? But the guidebook is not written in this industry yet today and and hopefully the building 4.0 crc will will be one of the 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 uh, efforts that lays some important foundations for for where this will go um but you know I, I i think about people like shop the architecture group out of out of new york who've been architecting for fabricatable structures right uh, kit apart by structures for for years now and and mm. so you know, there, there, there's a network of people around the world who've been believing in this idea for a long time. There's a there's a firm. And I'm sorry, but the, the name just escapes me. In in in, uh, we'll in San Francisco, who created yeah. cr- created, and I'll look it up for you. But who created an institute now, Project Management Institute, uh, fundamentally founded around these sorts of ideas. Right. Um, and again, you talk to any of these people, and they felt like lone warriors for a long period of time, but um, I know when we were doing a lot of the spade work for to, to get our thinking straight, and uh, and that has connected a lot of the people who've now come together in, in the in the in the building 4.0 program, and shop architects are, are inside that program as well. Just mm-hmm. by the way, um, uh, we found a community of true believers around the world who could see this and and were you know railing against the machine, doing what they could to move this forward, but but you know in an industry that hasn't yet you know, built momentum around this 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 change and this idea. But mm. as I say, there, there are many green shoots, and you're starting to see that. You know, McKinsey. I think if you just track their writings over the last three years, as they've really turned on to this, there was the seminal paper back in 26, uh, 2017 in February, I think it was, and they've written a number of things since. There's a very good one very recently as well. You know, you, they're they're making them louder and louder and clearer. Uh, noise around uh, the, the transformation and the inevitability, the need for and the inevitability of that. So there, there are there are numbers of places to connect with, I think. And if you start with any of those, you pretty quickly find most of the others because most of them know each other by now. <laughs> right, small small group. Brilliant. Well, 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 Bob. So you've had a fairly significant shift in your career over the past maybe the past three or four weeks, or maybe a month or so. So what 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 is next yeah. for you? What's what, what are you looking at? Yeah, I'm working that through. You know, it's been been uh, an interesting <laughs> no, we're, journey we're, coming out of Lendlease. Two, two, two weeks ago, I came out of Lendlease finally officially, right. and uh, but I'd started some conversations prior, and you know, I'm at a time 43 years into my career, right? And um, one possibility, I guess, if the right corporate gig came along, um, I, I, I'd consider it. Although, as every day goes by, and I'm working with some of the people I'm working with at the moment, um, it's becoming less and less likely. Of course, you know, most of the headhunters don't put 61-year-olds on top of their, their hit list either. So that might that problem might solve itself. I've been approached about a couple of board roles. Um, right. I don't feel like a board sort of guy, but I am doing some board credentials at the moment just to have that available to me. But the core idea I'm working on at the moment actually is with some really interesting guys, one of whom has done M&A work for years, but very connected in sort of mid-enterprise, 50 to $500 million companies. Okay. And we think the sector play in construction properties is, is one stream that makes a lot of sense because I'm convinced 
that the transformation that industry over the next 20 years is going to create many opportunities for many people. It's going to see investment in technology grow asymptotically and so on. So I, I do right. think that's one space collectively between the M&A, what I know is digital, and one or two of the other guys who got working with us might might bring is, is interesting. But one of the guys, for example, set up the micro-lending economy in the Philippines, is very well connected here in Australia. He's got a heart for Indigenous people in our country, as all of us who've come together do. And we believe in the self-determination, self-sufficiency of those of those uh, Indigenous peoples. You know, Australia's record on Indigenous peoples probably as bad or worse than anyone else in the world still. We're the only country whose Indigenous people aren't represented in our, our constitutional Bill of Rights. And and um, and uh, he he also set up a micro lending marketplace and a company called Many Rivers in Australia for those communities. And so, between our connections and our various paths, my career in corporate and in the digital space for forty years, um, and we're, we're we're already having some very interesting conversations from helping fund startups to help direct strategy for startups to help mid-sized, you know, two three hundred million dollar companies get their head around what they do about this digital thing. Right. I've got some work happening with one company looking at uh, grant money to support them in their pursuit of automated design in a manufacturing context. So, you know, that's an interesting adjacency to some of what we've been thinking about in this mm. space, but in a more bespoke end of the manufacturing sector. Automated designs happen with large repeat manufacturing products, but not so much at the more job shopping end. And so... It's it's a fascinating place I find myself in with some fascinating people whose values I love and in, into a you know when when I had my own business one of the things I really noted about mid-sized business entrepreneurs is a they come in all colours of the rainbow not just shades of grey right. corporate forces you to be a little bit more shade of grey just the nature of the beast um, yep. and and they you just get more done more quickly there's less bullshit right yep. and and so i i do enjoy that space and it could be where i spend my next 10 or 15 years so who knows uh, we'll see what comes i've committed that i'm making no long-term commits for three or four months just to see what the world brings along it's an interesting three or four months to be seeing what the world brings along well, of, of course, course yeah of course. um with the macro context we're in but um yes and then we'll see. But uh, it's nice, you know, when I came out, I know it's a long answer, but when I came out oh. of my prior life before going into then lease, I was chatting to people for about a month and every conversation people were asking me about my age and whether I still had energy and, and, yeah. and I, when I, I was kind of fearing that as I came out of then lease and thought I'm going to start talking to people. But, you know, there's right. not, it hasn't come up once. It's been cool. none of it. It's very interesting, six years on, that, that that's been far less prevalent than it was uh, mm. Six years ago, so I don't know how to explain that one, but it, that's been a relief. I've got to say, I've I've enjoyed yeah. the interactions I've been having and the possibilities that are opening up. So we'll see what happens. Fantastic. Yeah, we can, well, we're looking forward. Hopefully, you can come and join us again and give us an update as to as, uh, what you what you what you're into. Um, so what we're trying to do on these podcasts, try and ask you uh, a little bit about any books you'd recommend or maybe what you're reading at the moment or any podcasts or anything that you would like to just pass on to the people watching and listening. Oh, dear. You know, I read... You're smiling. I, I'm, I, I'm looking I, forward to this. You're looking like... <laughs> no, no. I, I unashamedly spend most of my reading time reading uh, um, um, mystery or or, um, or uh, murder mystery novels, okay. right? fiction. Yeah, and and uh, every now and then I'll bog in and I'll read a business book because someone recommended it strongly, or the boss decided everyone should read it. Uh, right. um, yeah. You know, measure Definitely. what matters. Measure what matters. I had my whole team read over Christmas. Good book, you know, just around 
the disciplines of, of, of setting your KRAs and, and driving outcome oriented mm. uh, management focus to, that, that well supports the idea of, of you know agile working as a business mm. beyond just doing agile technology. But I still, as a business book, you know, I, I still go back to, to good to great and I, I go back to the chapter on leadership. I guess, you know, I stayed in corporate, the corporate world, not because I love corporate, actually. Yeah. I, there are two things about corporate that I think are great. One is if you can get a change to take root, there's a massive power in that to change mm. big things. And secondly, it's a great opportunity to help people um, realize their potential. You get that kind of support in a corporate context and time and expectation around development of people. And and so the people thing and the leadership thing and building great teams is what's always interested me. And, you know, of course, there's so many issues you could talk to around the lack of diversity, the women's issues around, you know, really haven't seen greater participation by women since yeah. almost the 90s after the 60s to 90s took place. And I love the chapter on leadership in that book, and and I, I encourage anyone to read it. I still think it stands up. Good to great. The premise was they found eleven companies through a through a sort of first principle piece of uh, analytical work who'd who'd been in a sector for fifteen years and performed at about peer rate to the market comparators for fifteen years, and then went through a point of inflection and for fifteen years performed at three x or more of their peers mm. in the market. So it created a great they found 11 companies and then they studied a number of characteristics around, well, what happened that made that difference? And one they talked to was leadership and the findings yeah. on leadership are surprising. I'll leave it for people to follow that up, but I think it's a great dissertation. It should encourage anyone to understand that you don't have to be, you know, charismatic and loud and ego driven to be a leader. In fact, quite the contrary was true of the leaders in those organizations that made those sorts of shifts. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, Excellent. And and what about one of the mystery books? What about one of the uh, that was a good business book? Ah, uh, look, I'm a, I'm a sucker for the Reacher series. Um, I'm right. reading the Mitch Rapp, you know, American Assassin series now. There's a whole series of books done there. Um, Excellent. So you know, I, uh, these these are not great literature, but I do enjoy them. <laughs> That's what we love. Brilliant. No, I really appreciate. It. Hey, Bob, just an absolute pleasure talking to you today, and uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Likewise, Rich. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. If you'd like to see the show notes for this episode, head over to instoa.com forward slash podcast. See you soon.